Hello, and welcome back to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. And today, in our 23rd episode, we continue our back-to-back attack on tyranny. It started with Dion, but floundered due to his personality. Timoleon, brought onto the scene by fate, or the gods, or both, will complete Dion's project and free not just Syracuse, but all of Sicily from tyranny, setting the Syracusans up for a century of prosperity. Thanks again for the support of your listening ears. Be sure to tell others about the podcasts you particularly enjoyed or learned a lot from, and send any and all of your questions about Plutarch as you read through him to Tom acromaticus.co. I hope that these are encouraging you to continue your journey through Plutarch and helping you see and remember more along the way. But let's dive right in, shall we? I've paralleled these two Greeks, not because Plutarch did so explicitly as part of his project. It was not the parallel lives of the Greeks and the Greeks, after all. But to point out that the parallels are not just between the Greeks and the Romans. There are other larger narratives and themes winding their way through the lives, which are there to reward those of us who've decided to read all of them. They are, in fact, unified by more than just the Greek and Roman comparison project. One of those unifying features Plutarch explicitly mentions at the beginning of this life. He tells us that he began writing these lives at the request of his own friends. Sosius Senecio is one such friend, a prominent Roman who had served as consul under the emperor Trajan just before the turn of the 2nd century AD. Three of the lives are specifically dedicated to this Sosius. Theseus, which we've already covered, Demosthenes, which we've already covered, and Brutus, who is Dion's parallel, and we'll cover in a couple seasons. Two Greek statesmen and a Roman one. But I'm getting distracted. Plutarch began to write the lives for his friends, but he continued this work for himself, as he tells us. And I mentioned this very section of Plutarch's lives way back in the first episode, he saw that the research and writing involved in the composition of these biographies as the closest thing he could get to having these men over for dinner. More than that, he could have them over for dinner at the same time and compare and contrast their perspectives, wisdom, and lessons. Then, after careful observation, he could select from his career what is most excellent and most beautiful to know. And it's that that leads him to introduce Timoleon, and his Roman parallel, Aemilius Paulus, who not only showed good principles and habits of life, but also enjoyed good fortune, pretty much from beginning to end. We'll see a few much larger hiccups in Timoleon's life. This was obviously, as we remember, not the case with Dion, whose trajectory or story could easily be called tragic. We've seen other tragic characters, or at least tragic endings, Pelopidas' headlong rush against Philip, or Agesilaus serving an Egyptian rebel at over 80 years old, come immediately to mind because they're fresh from last season. But this life has a happy ending, and not just for Timoleon. But what lessons can we pull even from Timoleon's good fortune? This tension between Timoleon's good character, something he does choose, and his good fortune, something outside of his control, we'll see Plutarch attempt to harmonize this and help us find some life lessons. So now we really have to get started. And we get started right back in Syracuse, setting the scene since Dion's death. About mid-century, about 354, Dion had died. And Syracuse found itself going through a series of tyrants who just kept assassinating one another or taking to the battlefield. And Syracuse had gone from this flourishing and expanding city, which Dionysus I had had to build larger walls for, just after the Peloponnesian War, to a basic ghost town. And it wasn't just true in Syracuse. All the Greek colonies were suffering, either from Carthaginian pillaging and raiding, or the hometown pillaging and their local tyrants, who often supported each other in a weird foreshadowing of the mob bosses that we now associate with Sicily. But D2, 
remember, is still alive. He's just a tyrant in exile, in exile in southern Italy, and he had been biding his time and awaiting an opportunity. After almost a decade of chaos in Syracuse, he returns in 346 with a small band of mercenaries, sounds like what Dion had done, and reestablishes himself in his old position. The wheel of fortune had cycled through completely for him, and he found himself on top again. Just to the north in Leontini, that city to which Dion had fled when he was kicked out of Syracuse, another opportunistic tyrant now reigns, Hycetus. We'll come back to him, but the Syracusans already have an eye on him as a potential balance to Dionysus. In the west, we still have, and will always have, the looming Carthaginian threat. Plutarch, who will never call the Romans barbarians in his lives, does not hesitate to use this label again and again with the Carthaginians. By Plutarch's time, the first century AD, it's definitely meant as an insult. So, stuck with their new tyrant, a small group of brave Syracusans ask Corinth, remember Syracuse's mother city, for help against D2. Corinth already has a reputation for fighting wars that help all of Greece, not just wars that benefit Corinth. Upon getting the request, the Corinthians immediately vote to help Syracuse. At the time that they receive the request, they're enjoying peace and prosperity and hoping to grant some of the same to Sicily. When seeking someone to lead this expedition, a commoner stands up and suggests a man named Timoleon, whom no one has seen in public for over a decade. An odd choice. Plutarch thinks it must have been divine inspiration to put this guy back on the map. Fortune has pulled her first and second stroke. First, Corinth is at leisure to help Syracuse, and Timoleon, mostly forgotten, has been suggested to lead this charge. So... Why? Why has Timoleon been a recluse for the past decade? Well, that's the backstory we need first. But Plutarch wants to call our attention, of course, to Timoleon's most prominent virtues. There's always one or two dropped at the beginning of a life to kind of give you the overview. And Timoleon's most important virtues are his gentleness and his love of country, or at least they're the most important to this life. And it's funny because there will be times where we'll think, gentle and love of which country? but I think that's why Plutarch puts him at the front. Since gentleness is one of the 12 virtues Aristotle unpacks in the ethics, I'll grab a bit more information there to help us understand this virtue we don't usually hear a lot about or really even associate with the Greeks. We might associate gentleness with Christianity, but it's not to be confused with humility. Aristotle tells us that gentleness is a mean with respect to anger. So that doesn't mean that the person with the virtue of gentleness never grows angry, although that might be Plutarch's ideal. But the gentle person, according to Aristotle, quote, wishes to be calm, not led by his passion, but rather as reason commands, and so to be harsh regarding things he ought to be and for the required amount of time. So it's typical that virtue is a mean between the two extremes. The extreme of on one side would be anger, and the extreme on the other side would be being a pushover or a doormat, perhaps. And this topic was so important to Plutarch that he wrote a dialogue called On the Avoidance of Anger. I can do a blog post or a podcast about it later to do a deep dive on how Plutarch recommends we handle our anger because, well, it never ceases to plague the human condition, and we're always trying to bring it more under the control of reason. But thankfully for Timoleon, this virtue existed in him strongly from birth. His bravery on the battlefield showed itself most clearly in his youth when he saved his impetuous brother's life in battle. Timophanes, Timoleon's brother, <laughs> commanding the cavalry, is thrown from his horse, and most of his comrades scatter in flight and fear. The small band that remained was being overwhelmed, but Timoleon, who was serving in the infantry, protected his brother with his shield, and, while his shield bristled with spears, pushed the enemy back from his brother, thus saving his life. After being saved by his heroic brother, Timophanes goes on to fight more battles and rises in the ranks of the Corinthian command. 
but soon the Corinthians grant him a bodyguard, and if we read the life of Dion, we already know where this is going. Timophanes uses the bodyguard to put his enemies to death without trial, and once his main competitors are out of the way, he declares himself, you guessed it, tyrant. Timoleon tries to reason with his brother, asking him to let go of this madness and make amends for the evil he's already done. But when this fails, Timoleon, whose name, by the way, means the honor of the lion, and his brother's, Timophanes's, means seems honorable, or the appearance of honor. When this fails, Timoleon sees only one path forward. He forms a conspiracy with the brother of Timophanes's wife, and a prophet who happens to be a close friend. And the three men now try to get Timophanes to see reason. But Timophanes first mocks them, and then grows enraged. There's that anger. That they would dare to make such a request. Timoleon withdraws, weeping by this point, and while he covers his head, his two other friends draw their swords and slay the tyrant. Oof. In the 19th century, this was a popular scene to depict in pen, pencil, and paint. I put up some images in the show notes for you to enjoy. Obviously, like the tension of the brother setting up the deed, then not exactly doing it, but certainly being the responsible party. The scene parallels Socrates, too, serving in the infantry, defending and saving Alcibiades at the Battle of Potidaea. Alcibiades would go on to more and more prideful and self-centered actions, ending with his treachery and exile from Athens. You can see the life of Alcibiades for more information, but Socrates only ever used words to try to bring Alcibiades back from his life of tyranny. As a matter of fact, Socrates also spends a great deal of time in the Republic trying to convince Glaucon and Adiamantus, two of Plato's brothers, to live virtuous lives, not ones enslaved to our passions like tyrants. So there's this parallel where the philosopher is the opposite of the tyrant. He's the man who's learned to use reason to control his passions, and the tyrant is the slave to his passions and appetites. Socrates and Timoleon both fight tyranny, but in different ways. These paintings and sketches certainly capture the grief Timoleon must have felt, and after the deed is done, he's a marked man who had a hand in his own brother's death. He's a fratricide, like Cain, or is he? Most Corinthians approve of his deed, but Timoleon's conscience is not formed by majority opinion. Though he was able, at least temporarily, to place his love of country above his love of family, he can't shake the pain of having killed his own brother, that same brother whose life he had saved. He had his share of enemies, and they wanted to ensure that his popularity would not translate into political influence. So they make sure that no one ever forgets that this heroic slayer of tyrants is at the same time a man willing to betray and kill his own brother. At first, Timoleon is bothered by this, but then when his own mother refuses to speak to him, Timoleon is driven to despair. And here, Plutarch's willing to explicitly criticize Timoleon. Early on in his despair, he decides that the best course of action would be to starve himself to death. You can see the life of Lycurgus for someone who succeeds in doing that. Sort of a philosophical way to die, at least on paper. It sounds terribly painful to me. Thankfully, his friends talk him back from this cliff, and he just withdraws from public life wandering the countryside and avoiding city life. So his gentleness that he had by nature had not been strengthened 
by education. And so here, Plutarch's going to make a pitch for education. He says it takes whatever nature has given us and then it strengthens it for the activities of life. Otherwise, praise and blame, fortune and misfortune can carry us away as, as easily as passions can control the tyrant. He makes a, a cool excursus claiming that we should stick with our principled choices even when the outcome is unfavorable. And this might explain why some of Plutarch's heroes are heroes in spite of the fact that they don't succeed. See Dion, actually see Agesilaus too, and Pelopidas for that matter. But if the principles behind your investment choice were sound, you shouldn't regret the choice you made, even if things outside of your control, aka fortune, make it so that the choice seems like a bad one based on its consequences. This is why fortune sits at the center of this life, and one of the lessons I think Plutarch is trying to drive home. We should not confuse being lucky with being good. They are different things. Making all of our conclusions based on outcomes will obscure our vision of the good and lead to worse decision-making going forward. Decision-making not based on principles, but based on outcomes. And this, this could have been the end of Timoleon's story. Some obscure Corinthian who saved his polis from a tyrant, almost at the cost of his own sanity. But it doesn't end there. After his self-imposed exile, he's called back into political life. Not to serve Corinth, but to serve Syracuse. At least not directly to serve Corinth. And really, he's called back to do what he had done before. To destroy tyranny. The most important man in the city advises him to serve well so that they can remember him as a tyrannicide, but if he serves poorly, he'll only be remembered as a fratricide. While Timoleon makes his preparations, a plot is uncovered. Hycetus, that perfidious tyrant of Leontini, at first seemed like he would ally with the Corinthians, but he has shown his true colors and actually gone over to the Carthaginians. So Timoleon is now embarking on a war not just against one enemy. This is no longer a war to unseat Dionysus II as tyrant of Syracuse. Now Timoleon faces three enemies, Hycetus, Carthaginians, and Dionysus II. In so doing, the entire island has been enveloped in this Syracusan war in a single stroke. Hycetus even tries to convince them that he has this Syracuse thing under control, and the help of the Corinthians is no longer needed. Thanks anyway. But at this point, the anger fuels their eagerness, and all of Corinth unites in helping Timoleon. Then we have, as usual, a series of prophecies and omens preceding this journey. We remember the ones from Dion's life, the full moon, the associations with Apollo. These omens connect us back to that life of Dion. But here, a priestess has a dream that Persephone and her mother Demeter are conversing about their upcoming journey to Syracuse with Timoleon, mentioning both the place and the person by name in the dream. These are the same two goddesses that preside over the Eleusinian mysteries, the same mysteries that Dion had been initiated into with the Athenian Calippus, who later killed him. The revenge for the sacrilege of Dion's murder is now in Timoleon's capable hands. After the dream, the Corinthians outfit a sacred trireme, name it for Persephone and Demeter, and have it accompany the other nine ships as they sail off. Plutarch, a literary biographer though, is willing to leave his reader to make certain connections. He does not draw our attention to the Persephone detail and directly connect it with Dion, but he allows us to notice the religious parallel and draw our own conclusions. As they sail at night, they seem to be guided by a torch, just as the mystic initiates are for the Eleusinian mysteries. They have to walk from Athens to Eleusis under darkness, guided only by a torch. It's already pretty rare to set sail at night, though they may be trying to surprise the Carthaginians, and there could be a full moon. Those details Plutarch doesn't tell us. But this torch is a further sign, this mystic torch floating over the water, is a further sign to Plutarch that Persephone and Demeter are on their side, perhaps even leaving the way. His final note tells us that Sicily is traditionally considered to be 
the island from which Persephone was taken to Hades, by Hades, to the house of Hades, by Hades. And it is the island which she was given as a wedding gift when her mother finally negotiated with Hades and allowed her to be queen of the underworld for six months of every year. But as they approach Syracuse, the news they're hearing is disheartening. Hycetus has attacked Syracuse and now controls four-fifths of it, much as Dion had. He has those four major neighborhoods that are inside the walls, and he's besieged Dionysus II on that little island of Ortigia, with a large and small harbor on either side. Hycetus, though, continues to lie to the Corinthians, even though they're hearing from other sources just exactly how bad these lies are, and he calls on Timoleon to arrive as a partner and advisor in his mission to, quote, free Syracuse. In fact, he's laying a trap for them to be captured by a much larger Carthaginian navy. Hycetus's infantry also outnumber the men Timoleon brings from Corinth, and the odds are not looking good. But no worries, Timoleon has tricks up his sleeve too. He and the messengers of Hycetus have set up a public meeting at the tip of the toe of Italy in the town of Regium. There, in the presence of the gathered citizen body, Timoleon suggests that they all have their say, and they'll make public oaths to whatever is agreed to. Meanwhile, though, Timoleon is buying himself time to maneuver his own navy, small though it is, closer to Sicily, landing at Tauromenium, modern Taormina, on the eastern coast, about 75 miles north of Syracuse. He's able to sneak out of the meeting because of the number of long speeches that are going on, and even with the gates closed, he has the Regians sneak him out so that he can meet up with his navy and land at Taorminum, which will now be his base of operations for the remainder of the war. The Regians rejoice because the Carthaginians, famous for being crafty, have just been outfoxed by the Greeks. But even after the dust settles, things still look a little bleak. Hycetus has ordered more Carthaginian vessels into the harbors at Syracuse. Dionysus is still holed up in Ortigia, and Timoleon has a tiny polis miles away with 1,000 soldiers and 10 ships. No other city jumps up to join Timoleon in his almost hopeless and helpless-looking state, except for one small city, inland on the island and on the other side of the great volcano, Mount Etna. It invites both Hycetus and Timoleon, not for terms like the Polis of Regium had, but to take over their city. Two warring political parties, unbeknownst to the other, had each invited Timoleon and Hycetus to arrive with their armies, and, as fate or fortune would have it, both armies arrive around the same time. Hycetus' army, though, outnumbers Timoleon's by four to one, but as soon as Timoleon hears that Hycetus is in the neighborhood, they don't stop marching, they don't set up camp, they don't even eat dinner. Timoleon immediately attacks, and this bold stroke works. He manages to find Hycetus's men trying to set up camp in the later part of the afternoon, expecting no major resistance of any kind. They kill 300 of his men, capture 600 alive, and have the entire camp and all its supplies to themselves because most of Hycetus's men just fled in the confusion. As Timoleon enters this small city, the cult statue of the city sweats and the spear in its hand quivers. Plutarch wants us to take this as a good omen. Now, with this omen, so to speak, the omen of the battle and the omen of the, the statue in the city, perhaps, other Poleis really start to believe that Timoleon may have the gods on his side. The tyrant of Katana and Dionysus II both offer themselves now as allies to Timoleon. In the negotiations, Dionysus agrees to hand himself over to Timoleon, and with it, everything he still controlled, which was a significant amount of men, armor, weapons, and all of the supplies still on Ortigia. 
So Timoleon starts sneaking men in to Dionysus that are going to switch sides and allow Dionysus to escape. Dionysus, for the first time in his life, is seen in Timoleon's camp dressed as a private citizen without his accompanying bodyguard. Here, Plutarch pauses to contemplate the suffering of Dionysus II. He was a main character in the last life, and finally, his life, we're going to see how it ends. Man, is it a surprising one. With one ship and a little bit of treasure, at least a little bit by a tyrant's measure, Dionysus sails off to Corinth, where he will live as a private citizen until his death. Though born and raised in tyranny, and exercising that same tyranny over the people of Syracuse for a decade, Plutarch believes now that his suffering has been matched or even exceeded the amount of suffering he caused others. He saw the violent death of his grown-up sons, the abuse and murder of his daughters, wife, and sister, and so he arrives in Corinth bereft not only of power but of anyone who can be said to love him. And here he must pick up the pieces of his life while at the same time being a public spectacle. The Corinthians flock to see this deposed tyrant. Those who pitied him said that divine justice did sometimes visit in one's own lifetime. See, Dionysus is proof. His life continues its downward spiral, though, as he spends most of his time drinking, growing ornery enough to correct other barflies when they get the lyrics wrong. Some thought he couldn't correct his bad habits, but others assumed he'd rather be laughed at than feared. But all of this makes us think this is the tyrant, or one of the two tyrants, that Plato had an opportunity to convert. And this is where he ends up. When asked about Plato's teachings, Dionysus reflected that no one speaks truth to a tyrant as a friend. That is, no one but Plato and Dion, who had tried. But when they did so, the sycophants and toadies swarmed so thick around the tyrant, telling him whatever stroked his ego or lined their own pockets. The tyrant truly is not allowed even to be master of himself. And it's here that the ghost of Plato, and especially the text of the Republic, looms large. One theme of that long dialogue is that the, the evil tyrants inflict, they inflict not only on other people, but on their own souls, permanently disfiguring them. Socrates spends a large part of the last few books connecting the tyrannical government of a polis with the tyrannical soul of a person. And at the very end, while telling a story now known as the myth of Ur, a soldier tells his vision in the afterlife, which includes the judgment of tyrants who are never allowed to escape their punishment and reincarnate like the other souls do. Plutarch riffs on this theme, focusing on this life rather than ending with the afterlife. But to give Socrates credit, most of the book had focused on the effects of the tyrannical soul in this life, and the myth of Ur acts as a strong capstone or bookend to show that the effects of evil do redound into the next life. But this is the same Plato who had tried to teach this lesson to Dionysus and his father. The Republic is written with the personal experience of these two tyrants in the background. So this life isn't just about Timoleon or underdogs or fate. It's also about tyranny. And political tyranny is essentially the same as personal tyranny. Whether you get control of just yourself or the lives of thousands of citizens, the tyrannical soul looks the same. And Dionysus also shows up here in the middle of the life, a space often reserved for the high point of someone's career, the high point of their life, maybe the, the turning point of the climax. But instead of focusing on Timoleon, right in the center of the life of Timoleon, we have Dionysus II. As such, it'll set up nicely Plutarch's framework for judging the later Macedonian and Roman overlords, but it's more than that. Dionysus sits in the center as a contrast with Timoleon. Timoleon had experienced tragedy at the beginning, but his luck has only continued to rise 
since sneaking into Tower Minium or putting to flight a large army outside of Adranum. But Dionysus' life was not just a tragedy at the beginning, being born into tyranny, but it was the tragedy of rejecting philosophy again and again throughout his life. Shortly after Dionysus sails away, news reaches Timoleon and the Corinthians that 2,000 Corinthian reinforcements are on their way. But now, Hycetus sees that his main enemy is Timoleon, and all he has to do is find an assassin willing to take him out. Since Timoleon has no bodyguard, after all, he's not a tyrant, it won't be too hard to get close to him. And the assassin finds his opportunity when Timoleon leads a sacrifice at the altar in Adranum, that little town on the other side of Mount Etna that was the first town to believe in Timoleon. Two men enter the sacred precinct, armed with daggers. Just before they signal to each other to kill Timoleon, one of them is struck on the head with a sword. The assassin dies right there. But his companion assassin grabs the altar and begs for mercy. And the man who had killed him jumps up on a high rock to prevent immediate retaliation from the mob for committing murder. In a sacred area, the remaining assassin immediately confesses to the crime, the plan, and that Hycetus had sent them. This was another scene so dramatic that painters have attempted it. Check out the show notes for one particularly vivid rendition of the moments immediately after this murder thwarted the assassination of Timoleon. I do want to take a brief pause right here in the show to let you know that season four of the Plutarch podcast is brought to you by the support of Hackett Publishing. This small independent publisher has been serving the humanities since 1972. With affordable translations in everything from Homer to Dante, they've generously offered listeners of this podcast 20% off any title in their catalog and free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. With the coupon code Plutarch, you could add Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Iliad or the Odyssey to your library. You could get the complete works of Plato in a beautiful hardcover, or you could enjoy Shakespeare's Julius Caesar or Antony and Cleopatra. For the last two years, I've used Jan Blitz's notes on Julius Caesar to prepare my own students for the Roman context and background on Shakespeare's masterpiece. Really, that play is worth getting just for the introductory matter and the notes. Just go to hacketpublishing.com today and enter the coupon code Plutarch for 20% off and free shipping. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. But for now, we'll go back to the show. But why? (laughs) Again, why did someone step forward to kill the assassin? Well, It turns out there was a backstory. The murderer comes down from his high rock and tells his story. He recognized the face of one of the assassins as the man who had killed his father in Leontini years before. It's sort of an Inigo Montoya moment, but this man had not been consumed with revenge. He had been given one opportunity to avenge himself, and he took advantage of it immediately, even though he was in a sacred space right in front of an altar. But there are enough bystanders present at this scene that many act as witnesses and corroborate the evidence of both the assassin and what he has to say about Hycetus employing him to kill Timoleon, and the murderer, the son of the man who had been killed so many years before in Leontini. A hushed silence falls over the crowd as they realize either fate or providence has spared Timoleon's life by bringing all of these men to the same place at the same time. In everyone's eyes now, Timoleon has received not just divine favor, but divine protection. While this divine protection might scare away some enemies, it seems only to rile others. Hycetus calls on the Carthaginians to send a full force no longer lending him small contingents. And the Carthaginians managed to arrive in force, 150 ships and 60,000 infantry, according to Plutarch. What the Carthaginians had never managed to take by storm, Hycetus now hands right over to them. Four-fifths of the city of Syracuse and control of both of its harbors. Really everything except that small island of Ortigia, which Timoleon now controls with whatever Dionysus had left there. 
The Corinthians had been snuck into the Acropolis, and so they don't even have access to the harbors on either side. So their battle is not just against the Carthaginians, but against time. In another bold stroke, though, Timoleon starts shipping grain in small boats that don't need a harbor. They can just be pulled ashore. They're also so small they can weave through the naval blockade of the Carthaginian ships, not being noticed, especially if they sail at early morning or late evening. Hycetus tries to stop this by marching on Catana, but when he abandoned Syracuse, the man that Timoleon had left in charge of the Ortigia manages to take the Acredina, and now... Timoleon gains an advantage and has a little bit of access to, a, to the harbor north of the island of Ortigia. The Acredina is also the highest and most easily defensible section of the city, and it's directly connected to Ortigia. So they can easily protect it with a small number of troops, which is what they have. About 300 men have been snuck into Ortigia and the Acredina at this point. So thus far, it seems like foresight, virtue, and fortune have all worked hand in hand. But fortune takes the lead from here on out, at least according to Plutarch. Remember those 2,000 Corinthian reinforcements? They've been trying to make their way through Italy, but they've been closely watched by the Carthaginian navy. But at this point, inexplicably, the Carthaginian commander gives up and sails away. No one knows why. So when the Corinthians reach Regium at the tip of the boot of Italy, they find the straits completely calm and no Carthaginian boats waiting there to stop them. So jumping into whatever they can find, they all make it across with the horses just swimming alongside the boats. No storm blows in, all 2,000 men and horses and supplies make it across with whatever boats the Regian people can lend them. That's the first stroke of luck. The second stroke comes when we realize that there are Greek mercenaries fighting on both sides. Sure, the Corinthians have agreed to fight for the Syracusans, but there are Spartans and Thebans and other soldiers who have just become spears for hire, and sold their skills to the highest bidder. These Greeks who fight for the Carthaginians sometimes intermingle on the shores in their downtime. They'll intermingle on the shores of Syracuse, hunting eels, probably to supplement their diet, but mostly to stave off boredom. But they get into conversations down at the beaches. After all, they speak the same language. And the Corinthians appeal to the other mercenaries, pointing out that they're working for a barbarian to hand a Greek city over to barbarians. What do they think the Carthaginians are going to do? Take over Syracuse, hand it to Hycetus, and go home? No, they want to control the whole island. The Carthaginian leader, Mago, the commanding officer, suspects this treachery and dissent are growing in his own ranks. And so he, also rather inexplicably, abandons Syracuse, in spite of his much greater numbers. Two strokes of luck but they're topped off by a third. As Timoleon arranges his attack on Syracuse, he falls on Hycetus's men from three sections of the city. He has Ortigia, the Acredina, and then he's able to attack from one of the sections of the walls on the Epipoli. They not only win this battle, this three-pronged attack, but they manage to win without a single Corinthian soldier even being wounded. By now, Timoleon's fame has spread all the way to the Greek mainland. Everyone is talking about it. Within days of hearing about his safe arrival in Tauromenium, the Corinthians also receive news that he's taken Syracuse with no Corinthian casualties. But the Syracuse he takes over is a shell of its former self. More has fallen into decay and disruption since even Dion's time. And that was chaotic, as we saw. But at least D-Prime had ruled in a stable way that had allowed Syracuse to grow and prosper, even if not all of its citizens were able to enjoy that freedom. But the tyrants after Dion had pillaged their own people, and so many Syracusans had left the city that it now resembled a ghost town. In addition, what people were there took down all signs of tyranny. 
so there was more destruction before anything can be rebuilt. Dionysus' citadel on the Ortigia is completely dismantled. The graves and palaces of all the former tyrants are destroyed. Statues are pulled down, all but one, as we'll see in the life. Timoleon rebuilds the courts of justice in the same spot where the tyrants used to rule, bringing back the right to trial and the rule of law on the same physical place that the tyrants had removed it. The Agora, the marketplace, was thick with grass. Wild animals roamed through parts of the city that used to be populated. So to fix this, Timoleon recalls all the exiles, sending boats everywhere and giving them a Corinthian escort to get home. He requests settlers from Corinth to repopulate the ravaged city. But even that doesn't bring their numbers up to what he wants. So eventually, citizenship is opened up to any Greek who wants to settle in Syracuse. And as the population reaches about 60,000 again, Timoleon divides the land among them and begins to sell the properties inside the city. In many ways, he's really a re-founder of the city. But he knew that he wouldn't just have to restore and rebuild. Though Mago had left, and later committed suicide rather than face the Carthaginians, he knew the Carthaginians would be back for revenge. He needed to rebuild a city that could defend itself without relying on aid from mainland Greece. But Timoleon doesn't even stop there. He sails back to Corinth to find two wise men who can help him frame new laws for this democracy of Syracuse. That's also something that Dion did not do as well. When he returns, he sets out to make eastern Sicily safe for Syracuse again by ridding it of those opportunistic tyrants who had for so long swooped down on Syracuse in her weakness. He encourages Greek cities on the island, laboring under tyrannies, to revolt, to throw off their tyrants, confident that Corinth will support them. But Timoleon sees what's coming. The Carthaginians do return and in larger force than they had before. Landing on the western tip of the island, a place called Lilibaeum, they muster 70,000 men and 200 triremes, as well as siege weaponry and cavalry. This invading force is not landing to take a city. It's landing to conquer the entire island. When news of this reaches Syracuse, the citizens are terrified. What a reversal. After their hopes had been raised so high, Timoleon refuses to conscript men and to force them to march with him, accepting only volunteers who wish to take on these odds. He leaves with 3,000 mercenaries and 2,000 Corinthians and about 1,000 in his cavalry. He has an eight-day march ahead of him and then a fight against a force almost 15 times larger than his. As the men march, they pass some mules laden with parsley and begin to think of it as an omen. It's a bad one, though. They think since parsley is planted at people's graves. There's even a Greek saying that when the doctor has given up on a patient being cured, he'll say, all he needs now is parsley. But when Timoleon hears this, he stops his men to remind them that a parsley crown is given to the victors in the Isthmian Games. Those are the games that are sponsored by or near Corinth every two years. That Isthmus of Corinth, remember that spit of land from the life of Dion? So parsley he tells them, is a Corinthian sign of victory. And as he's telling them this, he crowns himself and all his captains. At the same moment that he does that, two eagles are spotted. One has killed the snake, and the other lets forth a piercing cry that must portend victory. As the day of the battle begins, the Corinthians must use their ears more than their eyes, as a thick mist hangs over the river. They can hear the camp stir, and as the mist rises, they see hundreds of chariots and infantry carrying white shields across the river. Those ones with the white shields must be the Carthaginians themselves, they think, 
since their order and discipline are exemplary and their armor looks to be of higher quality than those other Carthaginian allies, much more disordered and kind of crossing the river pell-mell. Timoleon arranges his troops, leading not the Corinthians but the Syracusans in the center. His cavalry fall upon the chariots, cause confusion in the crossing, and Timoleon charges down the hill to give them support. His voice seems more than human, and his shout must have been amplified by a deity as Achilles' was in the Iliad. Timoleon then sends his cavalry to attack the flanks while he falls hard on the center. These Carthaginians know how to fight though and the struggle moves from spears to swords. As it does so and they close to -to hand-to-hand fighting, thunder and lightning signal a coming storm. The darkness increases until it seems more like night and the rain, wind, and hail now pick up. Yet in all this, the wind, rain, and hail fall into the face of the Carthaginians, doing little to bother the Greeks. The Carthaginian heavy armor for horse and man turns to a disadvantage as the mud grows thick and the water weighs them down. By now, even the river rises and begins to sweep away men who had already crossed it. With 3,000 Carthaginian casualties, Plutarch points out that never before had the Carthaginians lost so many citizens in a single battle. In cleaning up the battlefield later, it becomes clear how many high-ranking Carthaginians had fallen. The men ignore the bronze and the iron because so much gold and silver lies all over the battlefield. For three days, they collect the spoils, piling 10,000 shields in front of Timoleon's tent. Timoleon sends some of this captured armor back to Corinth to be dedicated in the temples there. Meanwhile, back in eastern Sicily, the tyrants are still causing trouble, even those who no longer control Syracuse. Hycetus attempts to retake Syracuse, but Timoleon returns in time enough to cut him off. His cavalry officers are now so eager to take this guy down that they draw lots to see who can be the first to cross the river and engage with Hycetus. After losing this battle, Hycetus withdraws to Leontini again, the same polis that Dion had sought refuge in. And Timoleon captures him there. And he, his son, and his second-in-command are all put to death before the soldiers. The wives and daughters of Hycetus are put on trial and also condemned to death. Here, Plutarch tells us that Timoleon should have used his sway with the people to spare the lives of these women and children. But he remained silent and let the Syracusans have their will. They were, after all, just avenging Dion, whose wife and sisters had turned to Hycetus for help, only to be sent away on a ship with orders that they be thrown into the sea. But it's clear that Plutarch does not see revenge to be the same as justice. Nonetheless, looking around in eastern Sicily, two tyrants remain, Mamercus in Catana and Hippo in Messana. They're allied with the Carthaginians until Timoleon wins a battle against Mamercus. Then the Carthaginians finally agree to settle peace with Timoleon, asking only that the section of Sicily west of the river Lycus be considered Carthaginian territory. That's about 20% of the tip of the western triangle of Sicily. There's a map in the show notes with the river marked. They also dissolve their alliances with the tyrants on the eastern side of the island, refusing to help them anymore. So Mamercus and Hippo are forced to work together because that's all they have. But Hippo is betrayed by his own people, put to death before all the citizens in the theater of his own polis at Masana. Mamercus asks for a trial in Syracuse. While he is given the form of a trial, we can see that even democracies can act tyrannical. No one allows him to talk. They all shout him down every time he opens his mouth to recite his memorized speech. In despair, he tries to rush headlong and bash his head in against the stone steps of the theater. But when this fails, the Syracusans sentence him to crucifixion like a thief, Plutarch tells us. It seems Dionysus got off easy. Sicily, particularly the eastern two-thirds of the island, once again becomes an attractive place for Greeks to live. Entire cities can be repopulated. Agrigentum in the south and Gela, as well as Leontini and Masana in the east. Timoleon in all of this is the master architect of this great political restoration. 
consulted for almost every war, law, or territory assignment. He manages to bring it all into a harmonious whole. And this is where Plutarch starts to wrap this life, stepping back to admire the great man Timoleon was. He directly compares him to three near contemporaries, Agesilaus, Pelopidas, and Epaminondas, all of whom Plutarch knew well he had written a biography for each man. Though Timoleon most nearly imitates Epaminondas, he surpasses all three men. And what sets him apart is not just what he achieved, but how easily and how well he achieved it. It wasn't without effort, but the effort he put in looked effortless. (laughs) The Italians have a word for this kind of gracefulness in doing something difficult. Sprezzatura. And even Timoleon recognized how much of this was out of his own control. He often recognized explicitly the role fortune had played in his own life. In his speeches and his personal letters, Plutarch tells us that he thanked God for choosing him to be the instrument by which to save Sicily. When God's used in the singular like this in Greek, it generally refers to Zeus, but we should also keep in mind that Plutarch as a middle Platonist views the universe with a single ruler and a one high God, because Plato saw, saw that many gods of equal power was a silly concept. But the intermediate powers, or the intermediary powers below the one high God, he's still okay with calling gods. At any rate, Timoleon did thank the God, as the Greek says. The Syracusans rewarded Timoleon's service with a beautiful country estate, on which he finally brings out and settles his wife and children. He never returns to Corinth, preferring to see for the rest of his life the blessings of liberty he'd brought to his fellow Greeks on this island. He'd prevented the Greeks on this island from falling into squabbling that had enveloped them in mainland Greece for decades now. He surpassed in deeds what the orators in Athens had kept yelling at all the Greeks to do, unite and live in peace, prosperity, and freedom. In less than a decade, he'd purged Sicily of tyranny, preserving many Greek lives in the process. I was struck by a parallel with George Washington when Plutarch tells us almost all in a row that Timoleon lost his sight in his old age, which always makes me think of that scene where Washington has to put his glasses on when attempting from resign, to resign his leadership of the Continental Army. And he says something like, forgive me, uh, my sight I have lost in service to my country, or my sight I have harmed in service to my country. And all of his men refused to listen to the letter and put him back in charge of the Continental Army. But more than that, Timoleon also laid down his sole powers and insisted that the Syracusans not hand it back to him. So too, George Washington retired to Mount Vernon after two terms as president, though he could have served until death. Both men oversaw a war that set the groundwork for future prosperity of a people and a place. Like Washington, Timoleon was revered into his old age, continuously visited, and consulted for all future deliberations in war and peace. At his funeral, Greeks thronged the city with thousands following in his train. The loudest herald of the day announced, Timoleon, buried here at public cost, will be honored for all time with contests because he overthrew tyrants, repulsed barbarians, repeopled devastated cities, and restored the rule of law to the Greeks of Sicily. More than that, he had eclipsed his earlier reputation as a brother killer, as a fratricide. I want to close this section of his life with a much more recent reflection on Timoleon. Herman Melville wrote a long poem in eight stanzas of iambic tetrameter, reflecting on themes from Timoleon's life as Plutarch has here presented it to us. 
I'll read the last stanza and link to the whole poem in the show notes, which is worth reading and rereading, but particularly once you've read Plutarch's Life of Timoleon, because Melville does a fantastic job ruminating on some of its most important themes. Men's moods as frames must yield to years, and turns the world in fickle ways. Corinth recalls Timoleon, I, and plumes him forth, but yet with schooling phrase. On Sicily's field, through arduous wars, a peace he won whose rainbow spanned, the isle redeemed and he was hailed, deliverer of that fair colonial land. And Corinth clapped, absolved and more, justice in long arrears is thine, not slayer of thy brother, no, but savior of the state, Jove's soldier, man divine. Eager for thee thy city waits, return, with bays we dress your door. But he the isle's loved guest reposed, and never for Corinth left the adopted shore. Just one year after Timoleon's death, Philip II would be assassinated on the Macedonian throne, and his son, Alexander III, would rise to be the next biography we'll tackle. Though Plutarch doesn't say this, the Macedonian threat seemed to me to be a different caste than the Carthaginian enemy on the island of Syracuse. The Macedonians claimed to be Greek, willingly involving themselves in Greek politics, religion, and war. The Carthaginians as an enemy were clearly outsiders and could be fought against in a more unified way, as evidenced even by the undermining of the Greek mercenaries that had been hired by the Carthaginians. Nonetheless, the Macedonians were taking advantage of the Greek squabbling at this time, and Philip, throughout Timoleon's life, had been adding more and more poleis to his empire. Perhaps Plutarch wishes that the Greeks could have permanently settled the Macedonian question, as the Romans eventually do with the Carthaginians. What starts as a more powerful threat, the Romans will eventually conquer in three protracted wars. But that's a story Plutarch doesn't get to tell. Instead, we'll turn our sights from the peace and prosperity of Sicily to the turmoil on mainland Greece in the rise of Macedon. Thanks for joining me for this biography. If you're enjoying the podcast and finding in it the encouragement and perspective you need to pick up Plutarch, Give me a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next month, I hope I've inspired you to pick up Plutarch and let his lives influence yours.